Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me as always is Cameron. Hey, Michael. Hi there, Cameron. What's up? I'm, I'm down in the well. Oh, no. Well, here, let me throw you a few graphics cards to review. Hey. Pass the time down there. The 1080 is delightful. It allows me to do RTX graphics at the, at the exact rate that I want to. I can see the shadows and the reflections. Wahoo! And that's my legs are my legs are broken. <laughs> and that's all. That's all you need when you're at the bottom of a well is to review some graphics cards. Help! <laughs> really could have used that lesson in the 60s. I'm climbing out. Oh God, no, not this part. This uh, uh smashing your face in with the with the closest graphics card I have. Ow! Ow! I'm alive still. No, no, down into the well. Still the bottom of the well. Yes, yes, good. Down. This is not. This is a non-supernatural book. We don't need you climbing out of the well. I'm kind of a ghost, I think. I'm kind of the embodiment of evil. Hey, this is my bit. Get the hell out of here. Come on. I'm a ghost. Boo. Oh, uh, you're a ghost. Get booed on. <laughs> oh, I'm dead. Uh, and we never hear from him again. We're talking hey, what about what was that? Hey, what? I I uh I here I am. Mm-hmm. I just connected to the call. Oh, yeah, that's right. Are you telling me there was some sort of ghost here before? Ah, oh, shit. Uh, I just checked Discord and I have region set to underworld. Region set to well. <laughs> hey, we read Dolores Claiborne. 1992's Dolores Claiborne. Hey, can I say something? Uh, sure. As I uh, loudly sip my coffee directly into the microphone. Mm-hmm. This book fucking rocks. Yeah, it's good. It's good. This book's good as shit. Um, I can't remember, I know we talked about this last time, but you hadn't read this before, maybe? I, th- I think I have read the book before, okay. because I got about halfway through and I was like, oh, I do remember. But I did not remember the frame story, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the bookends on either side. I But we got about halfway in, and I I really remembered, like, the Dolores story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, t- telling uh, about... Her husband and all that stuff. So I, I, I must have read this at some point, or at least like gotten halfway through and abandoned it, something like that. But uh, it was like reading it for the first time, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I certainly didn't remember very much about it. Uh, also, really brought up to me how much, like, full dark, no stars as a book is almost entirely retreads of previous Stephen King novels and short stories. Oh, that's it's oh. it's kind of astonishing. That's interesting. So, Full Dark No Stars is like after I ducked out. So, I have no idea. That's a short story collection, isn't it? 
Uh, kind of novellas, okay. short stories. Oh, they're they're okay. a little longer than short stories, but a little bit shorter than novellas. Oh, okay, okay. It's one. Or it, I'm sorry, they are shorter than Stephen King's previous novellas. I guess is maybe <laughs> the, the best way of putting it. None of them can could or should be standalone 300 page novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, 1922 is a story in there that is about a man murdering his wife. Spoilers, mm-hmm. um, and it's real. Real similar mm-hmm. um, in in a lot of different ways to it. Um, so it's going to be fascinating getting to that book and being able to play like uh, find find the reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what? On this show, we call that the method paying off. <laughs> Our special little thing that we have for this show. But you had read this book and you liked it. Yeah, I read this, uh, as I said last time, I actually read this book before I read Gerald's Game, with which it is a kind of companion novel, just to recap some of that from the previous episode. Uh, These are Gerald's Game and uh, Dolores Claiborne are published one after the other in 1992, Uh, and they are very loosely linked together uh, via actual plot events, Um, and as we talked about last time, there was at one point a kind of plan to publish them together as a single volume called The Path of the Eclipse, which did not come through, didn't happen. Uh, But I read this one before I read Gerald's Game, so discovering that there was a a connection between them was kind of a surprise in that regard, but also I think ultimately made this book... uh, I mean, I think, honestly, even though Gerald's Game was published first, I think that this is the stronger of the two. I agree with you that it rocks. Uh, I had a lot of fond memories for it and about it, Uh, even though I think it is maybe a kind of minor king in the popular imagination at this point. Uh, It's odd because I was looking through uh, sort of, you know, this is the thing that I've been doing is I kind of like... look through reviews that I can Mm -hmm. dig up um, that are sort of contemporary to the novel or kind of articles about uh, King that are coming out in sort of the the mid or later 90s. Uh, And this is a book that gets name dropped. I mean, so in terms of reviews, it's it's received pretty positively. Uh, And then in the 90s, before what I think is kind of his big swing into like the Dark Tower mode, which we're coming up on Mm -hmm. pretty soon. it is often mentioned by reviewers as kind of like an example of like a mature Stephen King, uh, right? When people mm-hmm. want to make a claim that King has developed as a writer from his earlier career and he's producing different stuff and sort of like, you know, solid literature or something. Uh, Dolores Claiborne is one that gets name dropped. And I've heard people talk about the film, uh, which we will be discussing in the bonus ode, by the way, if you go to patreon.com slash range touch and, and uh, mm-hmm. kick us a few bucks there, you'll hear our thoughts on uh, uh, the long form thoughts on the film adaptation. Um, but uh, I've heard a couple of people talk about the movie, but uh, it, not as much as, say, like something like the Shawshank Redemption, but also similar to the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's one of those things where people will mention it and I'll be like, you know, that's a Stephen King novel and people are surprised. Hmm. So, I, d- I I did not know there was a movie uh-huh. before we, d- you know, discovered it, mm-hmm. talked about it. Uh, did not know there was a movie. Never heard anyone talk about it before. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on the movie. Yeah, like a lot of thought. We're go- we're going it that bonus ode. Y- y'all get ready. It's- turn this off. <laughs> go turn the bonus ode on. <laughs> That's where the real shit's happening. <laughs> this is all prelude. Right. 
For us, this is the past in its prelude. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I do. Stephen I King wrote do. that. Stephen King wrote it. That was his famous yeah. line. That's right. Mm-hmm. The the prelude is past. Stephen King, The Shining. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, I, I really liked this uh, book, and it is it carries forward the tradition of Gerald's game, kind of the dual traditions of Gerald's game. Uh, one, it is formally unlike a lot of stuff Stephen King has written. Actually, it's like I would actually say compared to Gerald's game, it is more formally experimental than even Gerald's mm-hmm. game because that Gerald's game was about like boiling down a thing that King does or has done. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Dolores Claiborne is taking something that Steve has done in short stories up to this point, which is writing in a very specific character voice and expanding that out to an entire novel. Um, right. Which I think the the closest we've come to this before was Rage, which had a first person narrator. Um, uh, I I I agree in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but I also think like One for the Road. Yes. The the Salem's Lot kind of tie in story. Yeah. Oh, I just meant or, in terms of like length of the project. Oh right, right, right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. He's yeah. He's done this a bunch of times, but yeah, that's the one. That's the only one where I read this and I was like, ah, oh, what? What is this like? And that's the one to me. It was closest. But you're right. Yeah. In terms of like sustained ability to do that in voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the only one that is even remotely close. Yeah. Yeah. But one for the road is definitely like the. I think maybe more primary thing to point out here is a predecessor because it's. King writing in uh, old Manor voice for an extended period of time and sort of clearly interested in presenting that sort of character, that sort of perspective on the world and trying to uh, reproduce it within fiction. And also like Gerald's Game, this is a novel about uh, women and women's issues, uh, kind of broadly conceived, uh, because Mm -hmm. the narrator here is Dolores Claiborne herself. Mm -hmm. And unlike Gerald's Game, it's good. <laughs> I I cannot tell you the it's inexpressible. It is it is pure affect unreducible to language. The feeling I felt halfway through this book in terms of like how much it has diminished Gerald's game to me. Mhm. Where it's like I can't believe I wasted my time reading that book when I could have been reading this book. Yeah. It's that level of like Holy shit. And especially knowing what you told us last time, which is he wrote this one first? Yes. Ugh. I I I think I think in that episode, I don't remember exactly where I landed on it. It's been a while since we recorded it, right? But like I remember being middling on Gerald's game like in the end, you know, like mm-hmm. in that episode where we were talking about it, but every day since we have finished that book, I have liked it less. And then reading this book made me, I think, actively hate that novel. Um, I it has like now in the same way that like when we did our rankings from from you know the last question sewer, mm-hmm. somehow Christine had ended up like way at the top of my list for some reason, mm-hmm. just based on the way that these novels shift their, you know, my opinion toward them as I read more of them. Dolores Claiborne has uh, simultaneously gone up that list, you know, just by existing and being good and has pushed many other novels very far down uh, by virtue of its thing. That's that's the curse of the method is knowledge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, imagine how well I'll get into this when we discuss the full thing. Right. But imagine reading Dolores Claiborne first and then reading Gerald's game and trying to rationalize that, especially because that would be like punching yourself in the mouth. (laughs) Right. Because these are. Uh, uh, 
these are connected novels, right? Very lightly connected, but there is a connection. And how that connection works operates so much better in this book. Right. I, I think it could be cut yeah. entirely, but it operates so much better and fits so much better into the story being told. Whereas Gerald's game, uh, Gerald's game is this, is this kind of like weird grab bag of a couple of ideas that do ultimately kind of get knit together. Uh, but it still feels like a couple of very different ideas that get knit together. Yeah, I think, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about when the when we get to the plotty, plotty, plot discussion of the show. But I do think the way you could do this is, I think you could take the part of the Eclipse stuff from Gerald's game that he really wanted to hold on to. Mm -hmm. I think it could be in this novel. And I think it could be in this novel if you created two eclipses that happened like five years apart from one another. Mm. That... Uh, that, you know, you would have to Stephen King some shit up, right? Where it's like, this for the first time in right. main history, there have been two eclipses that are happening within four years or whatever. Right. Um, and you could get the, the kind of two people looking at one another across a gulf mm -hmm. thing with the eclipse, which he seems really fascinated by. You could get that, and it would be a better kind of more consistent thing, right? Because you could have a mother and a daughter looking at one another mm -hmm. rather than two unrelated people. Although the two unrelated people conceptually very cool, but the um, uh, actual, like the, it does not sink the shot here, right? Like it's just not the thing he wants it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree with you. I think it should just be cut from the book to be frank. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yep. High level uh, other big, big, big idea thoughts. Um, <clears throat> I imagine most people who listen to this show, and if you've listened to, like, the previous episode, you know, uh, something of what these two novels are about. Uh, but just to reiterate, this is also a novel about, like, childhood sexual abuse, and, um, particularly, like, within a family. And so, those are some other things that are coming up here that Steve is interested in again, and that we'll be discussing, like, moving forward. But just flagging that here also, right? That this is, uh... I mean, I, it, we were kind not really talking about it last night. You were just like sending me some articles that you had pulled up because we were trying to contextualize this within kind of the uh, late 80s, early 90s satanic satanic panic, uh, the recovered memory kind of uh, a wave and so on and so forth, um, where I think it is interesting that Steve sits down to write his novels about women uh, and ultimately makes them both about childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. Right. Sublimated childhood mm -hmm. sexual abuse, um, which really comes up in the film more than the this novel, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, basically, after we did Gerald's game, there was some discussion on the Discord about, like, well, where's all this coming from? Because I think we'd both asserted, you know, in the episode itself, like, this was a thing in the 90s. You know, this this idea of the lost memory of abuse, right, mm -hmm. broadly. And so I, especially after watching Dolores Claiborne, again, go over to the bonus notes on patreon.com slash range touch to hear us talk about that. Um, but it, after watching that movie for the second time in a row <laughs> to listen to the commentary, I got, I yeah, I just did, you know, half an hour, an hour of research last night, clicking around um, and reading about the... Um, the psychological movement for repressed memories that was happening in the 80s, which is largely discredited now, um, and not discredited because people don't experience horrifying moments of sexual abuse that they then sublimate and don't deal with, right? And that comes back later. Those things occur. 
certainly. But the the criticism of that movement is that there were lots of therapists who were very interested in making their name based on helping people remember their previous experiences, um, at, you know, as children, whatever. Um, and so they would talk to adults and then they would talk to children. And there were kind of two separate phenomena that were happening there. Mm-hmm. And the talking to adults, it was a lot of what we've kind of been talking about, weirdly enough, in a lot of different range touch shows recently, of almost cold reading. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of therapist prompting of people to um, discover moments of sexual abuse or just abuse in general in their childhood. Um, and the ethical stuff around that recently, not recently, since the early 2000s, there's been a lot of questioning of those methods. Um, and then of of uh, basically bullying people into mm-hmm. inventing memories because they because of the therapist and um, recipient kind of relationship their patient relationship and so there's a lot of discussion about that you can go read up that on on your own time um, but this was a moment the late 80s early 90s was a big moment of people going through therapy not not psychoanalysis but this very particular kind of of memory extraction therapy essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that that produced uh, a lot of maybe revelatory moments for people but also it seems like based on the data we have af- afterward manufactured a lot of that as well mm-hmm. uh which is not to we got you know we have to be very careful and very clear here right like this is not to say that people remembering their actual experiences of abuse as children uh, not uh, questioning that not pushing against that but there's a huge amount of data that says um, and reporting uh, that therapists were going through very unethical and productive uh, moments of um, basically pressing their patients into inventing memories right. um, and inventing experiences. And at the same time, that was happening to children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were a couple really famous daycare yeah. um, uh, w- w- uh, repressed memory trials, basically, that, that children... We're saying that their uh, daycare teachers and daycare uh, caretakers were sexually abusing them and also were involved in satanic rituals and cannibalism and all these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a couple famous. One was in Minnesota and the other one's in Maryland, maybe. I, I don't, don't remember. I, don't, I, remember I was reading about it last night. Now yeah. I've forgotten the exact location, but very famous kind of trials around this. And we know data-wise from that as well and from several other instances that were happening is that these therapists who were very invested in memory recovery uh, were bullying children into doing it. And many of those children, as they became adults, recanted their stories. Mm -hmm. uh, Or because these trials went on for so long, they became adults as the thing was happening, Mm -hmm. um, as the trial was ongoing. And they recanted their stories and, and said things very directly, like, I went into an interrogation office and a therapist badgered me 60 or 70 times in a row to tell them something. And I was being harassed as a child and I wanted to get out from under that. Um, and so I told them that, you know, my teachers were eating babies or whatever. Right. Um, which I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> That's part of the thing. Which is all to say, right, this is all very, um, uh, what do you call it? It's it's all very exploitative, mm-hmm. like massively exploitative. And it is all very much the stuff that Steve has talked about doing of uh, looking at what's on the National Enquirer to kind of drive what's going on in the novels. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's actually a book that I, I sent you a review of the book. I obviously did not have time to read it. But there's a book that is about all of this that looked pretty interesting to me that is called... 
Um, we believe the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed pretty cool. I don't, I don't know much about it. It's by Richard Beck. Um, but it's, it's going through this, mm-hmm. um, and it's going through what, what's happening in the eighties where particularly the conservative right in the United States begins leveraging children as a mechanism for, um, uh, political usage. And this is one of the elements of that. One might think now to the exact moment that we are in, in which children and children's innocence and children's uh, kind of existence as um, the future of certain kinds of families is Mm -hmm. being used to limit the rights and actively attack other human beings. So it's a playbook, um, certainly. So so that is all to say, right, to give a little bit more granularity on what we talked about briefly before, you can do a lot of research on this yourself. There's a huge amount of writing about it. It was a big thing to talk about in the early 2000s because people were piecing together these narratives. And more importantly, the children who were involved in the 80s were finally able to speak Mm -hmm. um, and and felt like it was socially important for them to speak um, as adults to tell the story of what what happened. and also, this is made much more complicated by this mass phenomenon in which there also are real things happening, right? Like, actual children are being sexually abused, but that is crowded out, right, Be, because of this moral panic that is about something separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, hucksters, you know, within the—or not all, but a large number of hucksters within the um, memory reclamation movement, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's all to say, I think you're right. It is odd that Stephen King looks at what at this point had been four or five years of pretty um, high profile child sexual abuse stories, right? That are largely on places like National Enquirer, you know, that that's it's driving the kind of exploitative press in a lot of ways. And then he's like, all right, that's what these books are about. Well, it is and it isn't right, Uh, because. The narratives that he tells, and we talked about this in the previous episode, and it's true again in this one, uh, is that they, he doesn't, I mean, this is the the odd thing about, you know, Stephen King, uh, he doesn't go- <laughs> This is the one odd the thing one about odd Stephen thing. King. <clears throat> but he doesn't go for, like, uh, the, the like, satanic rituals, uh, uh, kids being kidnapped and things done with, actually, that shows up in Salem's Lot, right? That's like a real, right. like, low, right. low level sublimated thing going on in Salem's Lot. Uh, but for Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's game, uh, it almost seems to be he seems to be engaging with these uh, trends in like the national news, but also trying to write back against them uh, because he is very clear in both of these novels that the uh, childhood sexual abuse that's happening is happening within the family. And it's happening yeah. like, you know, at the behest of like the men in the family, right? These kind of uh, uh, patriarchs, uh, very entitled to their own authority and that sort of thing. Like there's, um, you know, it, it's not the most radical critique of <laughs> the nuclear family that you could come up with. But it seems like, uh, you know, in some ways, Steve is aware of that. Yeah. And I think that's right. I, because like part of this, too, right, is that in the 80s especially the early 80s, there is, I think, a national conversation happening that is around, hey, children get sexually abused. Mm -hmm. Like, that happens in a way that it was deeply sublimated. You know, I I, I was talking to my mother, not not recently, but but fairly recently, about um, her experiences in the 80s and the 90s and realizing that lots of people that she had gone to church with you know, this is without being any kind of detailed, but had experienced sexual abuse within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and she found this out when she was like a late teenager, 
and it, it turned out to be like several people, right? And that was during the 80s. There, there was a kind of um, recognition even in the rural South, right, that um, that where, you know, the number of people was just so small, right? But even there, there was a kind of recognition and a reckoning with what was regular ass behavior mm-hmm. essentially right and and that that's happening and then there are people who are really engaging with and, and discovering th- and working through therapeutically things that happen to them right like i think that that is a national movement that that's going on and then the rest of this stuff builds on top of that right mm-hmm. like the the rest of this stuff builds on top of something that is authentic and a real movement that is coming from a recognition that 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 event occurs those acts occur and then all the other exploitative comes uh, you know an entire field of exploitation truly emerges out of that and then a national moral panic that is tied in with um you know this this nuclear family concept um you know or not concept but promote the high promotion in the reagan years Mm -hmm. of the nuclear family i guess is the better way to put it and yeah i think so i i think you're right it is interesting that king goes for that you know, for for lack of a better word, like the the most realistic thing, um, as opposed to yeah, the <laughs> you, you know 1991's PizzaGate, which you could also imagine Stephen King going for, right, right. That would not be shocking in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess um, with that out of the way, do you think I should start on the summary? Yeah, let's do it. All right. No, let's go for another fifteen. Okay. All right. So let's see what can we talk about for fifteen minutes. Uh, my copy of the book is a tie-in for the film. It's got Kathy Bates' face on it. Oh, that's disappointing. I have the original hardcover. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I got at a book sale, a library sale. Like, I got where I get most of mine. And, uh, it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, but before, does, does your have the, yours have, like, the plates at the beginning of the, of the book? No, it does not. But I, oh, this, the first edition hardcover was the first version that I read, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's woodcuts of Dolores Claiborne's house, and there's, like, a plate at the top, like, a medieval-style plate, you know, like, a big image at the beginning of the book that's with the first sentence. Um, and at the top, there's, like, a plate on every page of, I guess these are not plates because they're not in color, but there's a... Uh, an, uh, like an etching illustration of the the stages of the eclipse at the top of every single page, and like the it's a slightly thinner than normal book, and so the margins are equal on every side, and it's like a column, almost like I don't know. It looks like a transcript, I uh-huh, guess. Right? You know, <laughs> I it it is very few Stephen King books to me are like art objects. This one is an art object, and I got to be honest, maybe that's why I enjoyed the book so much. <laughs> like, there's just a little bit more to it that I I find very charming. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's good. All right. Yeah. So was that 15 minutes? Uh, it's close enough. All right. <clears throat> so this is the five sentence summary. Uh, it is the part of the show where one of us summarizes in five sentences, no more, no less, the book that we just read uh, off the dome. So we're not taking a long time to read a Wikipedia page or anything like that. We are trying to reconstruct the whole thing in five sentences in our brains. And this time the solemn duty follows to me. <sighs> <clears throat> Sentence one. Dolores Claiborne is an aging woman who lives on an island off the coast of Maine. That's one. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's true. Two. 
For years, she has been employed by a woman named Vera Donovan, a local rich lady, uh, for whom she has served as a housekeeper, and later, as Vera has aged and begun to struggle with dementia, as a live-in companion. Mm Mm-hmm. Three. When Vera dies in an accident, many assume that Dolores murdered her, Due to their widespread belief on the island that Dolores got away with the murder of her husband years before. Uh-huh. Four. The novel begins when Dolores is taken into a police custody to make a statement Uh, about this and ends up delivering a night-long monologue in which she explains not only what actually happened to Vera Donovan, uh, but explains that she murdered her husband for molesting her daughter and stealing their kids' college funds. Uh Uh-huh. Five. Everyone believes her and Dolores reconnects with her estranged daughter. Yep. I think that's it. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> I mean that that is all true. Yeah, like conceptually, like this is a, a generally speaking, like a, a fairly simple story, despite the fact that it has an odd, like it's it's odd in presentation, it's odd in construction. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit because there is there's kind of like two parallel plots that happen within this novel that sort mm-hmm. of crisscross each other. Uh. And uh, it feels odd, right? Steve has also never really written a, a, a novel like this, like that has uh, kind of the, I don't know, the pacing or the mood of all of this. I mean, the the one thing to say uh, here that we just didn't mention in, in kind of the big introduction is that uh, this is the novel that comes the closest to uh, what we've called in the past, like, just the bourgeois melodrama, right? Like, this is just straight up, like, a novel about some people living in a place, like, dealing with the problems that they have in their lives. Right. Which is why it's not shocking that uh, everyone's like, finally, Steve is writing books! Uh-huh. Finally, Stephen King writes a book that I like! <laughs> it's Well, yeah, it's because he wrote, like, a New York Times novel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is fine. Like, I think the book is very good, but, like... The the valorization of this particular mode is, like, very eye-rolling. It would make me... I understand why Stephen King is constantly like, all right, well, I guess I gotta write a novel about a shit monster now. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I have a moral duty to write a novel about, like, people blowing snot into their hands and eating it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, to, to just throw the finger up to this crowd of people because <laughs> I think that's the morally right thing to do. Um, and I like that he can do it. You know, I like that he's like, all right, fine, I'll write you your murder confession novel that you'll all like. <laughs> but, but yeah, but you're, you're 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Um, like, th- this is, this is quite different. And I, the thing that I read, I don't, maybe it's in this Bev Vincent book. I, I, I was telling you before we started recording, I've purchased this new Bev Vincent book, Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life, and influences. It's a real kind of like coffee table book. You know, it's mostly summary. I think Bev Vincent's actually written a book like this before, similar style of book. But it's got some nice photos in it and uh, some good summaries for these books if you just kind of like want to revisit the career of Stephen King. Um, but he also knows King, right, and has a pretty good depth of information about King. And so there's some good, 
you know, little little interview snippets and whatnot that are interspersed throughout the book that was pretty cool. But so I don't remember where I read this, but the um, somewhere I read Stephen King saying that the heart of this book is actually like the reason he wrote it is to do the story about the woman confessing the murder. Hmm. And then everything else around it just kind of spiraled out of that. But but really, he was like, all right, can I write a book that is someone confessing of killing her husband? Mm-hmm. Which I think is pretty funny. Because you're right, it's two different plots, but really it's like 50 pages of a plot. No, not even that. Like, no, maybe, yeah, 50 pages of a plot, 200 pages of a murder, and then 50 pages of a plot on the other side. You mm-hmm. know, it, one dominates the other. Yeah, it's... um. I mean, it, and it works, right? It works because uh, this is a this is a monologue, right? There are no chapter breaks, uh, no starting and stopping. This is Dolores gets pulled into uh, custody. She sits down like we meet all the people in the room with her through her kind of like talking about them and taking note of them and always asking like where they're from and stuff. Uh, and there's, you know, the, the, her, she's being recorded. So we're to understand that this is, this is a transcription of all the stuff that she said. Uh, and because of the way that people actually tell stories where they'll start and they'll tell you one thing and then they'll like, uh, swerve off into another thing and then tell a whole long other story and then be like, okay, so remember that thing that I told you about way back at the beginning. Now we're ready to go back around to that and we can like tie this off. Uh, it all works out like it feels like uh, seamless in a way. That's an odd thing to say because I already said it has no chapter breaks, but like it works right. The narrative mode works and uh, doesn't feel like strained or anything. It doesn't mm-hmm. um, it doesn't. And, and, you know, Steve is a pretty humble guy. It doesn't feel show offy because I don't think even though it is a little bit show offy, right? The the you don't write a book like this without being like, can I pull it off? Right. Yeah, there's a uh, I mean, it just let me let me read the intro like truly mm-hmm. like it because it is so confident out the gate mm-hmm. that the, and I think that means you're either on board or off. Like, I think it, it's hard to be middling on this book. Um, but yeah, so it's just like, what did you ask Andy Bissett? Do I understand these rights as you've explained them to me? Gory. What makes some men so numb? No, you never mind. Steal your jaw and listening to me for a while. I got an idea you're going to be listening to me most of the night, so you might as well get used to it. Because I understand what you read to me. Do I look like I lost all my brain since I saw you down to the market? That was just Monday afternoon, in case you lost track. I told you your wife would give you merry hell about buy- you buying that day-old bread. Pennywise and pound foolish, old saying is. And I bet I was right, wasn't I? I understand my rights just fine, Andy. My mother never raised no fools. I understand my responsibilities too. God help me. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's fire. Mm-hmm. Like that is just like hot lightning coming out of the typewriter, <laughs> out of that, out of that old Wang, uh, you know, uh, word uh, processor. Word processor. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he's just hitting it. Yeah, um, and it, it's great. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think it's really good and so clearly characterological, right? Like. She's voicey. Dolores is very voicey mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I really like. Yeah. And and so like her speech becomes peppered with uh, all of the things that we tend to call Kingisms, right? The kinds of and, but it's a, a device that King relies on a lot for a lot of characters in a lot of contexts like uh, characters who have things that they say, like turns of phrase or like strange um, parts of speech that they tend to deploy in certain ways. Uh, and Dolores is like that writerly instinct on overdrive. By the end of this thing, you know that 
uh, Dolores calls things boogery, right? Like that when, when something <laughs> right. is, is gross or like, you know, just kind of, uh, I mean, gross is kind of the, the, the closest like approximation, right? Some, some other person would be like, oh, it's gross outside today. Dolores says boogery and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's like everywhere throughout the book. Like any moment of description is a moment for character, um, voice, mm-hmm. you know, to, to come in. Uh, which is which is great. Yeah. It's excellent. I think it's very good. Yep. I yeah. I I really like it. I think it's really successful. Like of course, uh, uh, the writer in me always because uh, writers are are uh, horrible little creatures, right? Uh, this reading, I zeroed in on the moments where I was like, "Ooh, this is where the conceit like strains a little," where she has to directly address someone else in the room in a way that feels a little too artificial to me. I would write this different and more smoothly, right? Uh, but that's the kind of pettiness that happens when, uh, like me at least, I guess you're a you're a writer who is very interested in things like character voice and how do you do things conceptually with narration, uh, right? But like, I remember reading this when I was in, I guess, high school. It would have been uh, maybe late middle school and just being like, well, hot damn. Like, why? Why aren't there more books that are basically like this? Turns out there are. And then I went and I read those. But. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I read it as a full grown adult and it uh, it worked. Yeah, I I zoned, zeroed in on nothing. <laughs> I say it, it flowed over me smoothly like some sort of duck water. Yeah. Well, and that's the uh, other uh, uh, argument to be made there, right, against me, is that in some ways this is like a, um, like you could imagine this being delivered as a dramatic monologue, right? Like as a, like a one-person play or something. And in that way, uh, kind of the staginess of her addressing like Andy and being like, take that bottle of Jim Beam that I know you keep in your desk drawer out because I'm going to need a slug. Uh, right, that that uh, becomes more acceptable when I think of it in, in that context as something more intentionally dramatic. Yeah, that's the uh, well. I, you know, I, I I'm I'm gonna fight you here. Okay, I'm coming out. I got my Wolverine snick snick. Uh-huh. I got my Wolverine claws out. I got my my slick back hair. I'm muscly. Uh huh. Because I think that some of those moments. I mean, not all of those work, obviously, but I think some of them are very strong. Like the the one on forty eight for me. It's like one of the first big breaks like that where she where the uh, concept overwhelms. So like the whole novel is delivered as this like. Uh, confession this all-night confession and as you're saying there are these breaks that happen pretty regularly where she addresses the people in the room and the people in the room are the sheriff sheriff andy Mm -hmm. (laughs) yet another yet another andy there is uh the what is her name um i can't remember oh i'm blanking on her name that uh, a woman who's like the she's a transcriber i guess yeah she's like the stenographer or something for this right right and that's what we're reading. We are reading the transcript that she is preparing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's one other person in the room too. Yeah. But the one that really, the one that really got me, where I was like, "Oh, this thing works," is, is like I said, it's on page forty-eight for me, and it says, uh, it, "She's talking." Dolores is just talking. She's she said when she got a bee in her bonnet about the other things, and then there's like a dash. What, honey? Oh, wasn't I? No, you don't need to move your cute little recorder any closer. If you want me to talk up, I will. So there's this thing where, like, King even gives you modulations in the voice as a way of giving Dolores character to what she's saying about who. Mm -hmm. You know, she's talking about Vera, this woman she works with, which we'll get into in just a second. And she's thinking about her. 
and she's beginning to like not she she's talking to herself essentially she's not performing anymore for for this confession she's like getting quiet a little bit and she's thinking about you know she's doing all that kind of stuff and, oh wait hold on what and she comes back to the thing and that to me is like i would never get there right <laughs> you know like i don't have a little writer in my body i have to like uh, tamp down you know what i mean like this is not me uh and so i would never get to this kind of of oh you can use the transcription media that's being, you know, represented in text here to get some additional complication on Dolores as a character. That to me, I was like, okay, I'm in. Mm-hmm. Like, this is where it's at. Yeah, uh, I think it's really good. Yeah, no, it's good. I like it overall. Uh, and Dolores is just good as a character, right? Like, Dolores is uh like fully voiced and feels like. I mean, realized, obviously, because you spend the entire book, like, with her, like, hearing her, right? Like, there's there's yeah. no, well, there is a couple, like, uh, uh, epistolary things at the end where we get some, um, uh, like, news articles, right, that are appended to the transcript as kind of a, a, a closer. Uh, but otherwise, this entire book is just, like, Dolores's takes on the world and everything in it. Yeah, well, let's talk about Dolores then. Yeah. Let's talk about her job, Mm -hmm. because that's the the kind of weird thing here is, like, it would be easy just to, like, talk the whole book, and we obviously can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about Dolores. Let's talk about her as a character, what we know about her, what we don't know about her. Let's talk about her job and her relationship to Vera, Mm -hmm. and let's talk about the murder she confesses to and the whole stuff around that. Yeah. Like, I think if we can get to those three things, I think we'll be good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so uh, Dolores is uh, an old Manor woman. Uh, she's a kind of a version of the character that we first saw in The Reach back from, yeah. oh God, what was that? The second short story collection called Skeleton Crew. Skeleton Crew. Yes. Uh, that's right. I can remember the names of things too. Awesome. Uh, everyone, everyone give it up to Cameron. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, uh, 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 what's the, what's the opposite of an F in the chat? Hold Co- on. Coops in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> I was just checking my keyboard to be like, what would what would plausibly be considered the opposite of an F along which axis no, here? Number pad four uh-huh. in the chat. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, she's she's a, a character type, um, but because of the nature of this book, she gets more space to roll around in than any sort of equivalent character that Steve has uh, uh, attempted thus far. So that's part of, you know, how this how this works. Um, she is, uh, a kind of lifelong island person. Uh, that was a thing that showed up in, in that short story as well. This idea of, uh, people who are from the island have lived on the island their entire lives and very rarely leave. Uh, and she has worked as a housekeeper, uh, in various capacities for various people throughout her life. Uh, and, and we get, uh, a lot of words about how if you're a woman on the island, this is a lot of the work that you do, particularly in, like, the hotels and for the summer people for the tourist season. Right. Uh, and one of the kind of key players in this whole market on Little Tall Island, where Dolores lives, is this woman named Vera Donovan, uh, who is the wife She's she's wealthy. She and her husband are wealthy. They are from Baltimore and they summer on Little Tall Island uh, for a good long while. And Vera is notorious among the women of the well of the, the people on the island in general, but the women of the island in particular, because so many of them have to work as housekeepers. Um, 
Vera is notorious as being a total hard ass about everything. Like, if there is one person you don't want to work for among the summer people, Vera Donovan is that woman because she is uh, so demanding, so particular, uh, so confrontational, um, and so sort of like, you know, conscious of herself as as a wealthy woman. Right. Um, and nevertheless, Dolores has worked for her for decades uh, and not only worked for her for decades, which uh, and Vera is notorious also for like firing uh, her housekeepers if they do one small thing that she dislikes uh, uh, to her exacting standards. If they if they fall short of that, like they are gone and they're not just gone. She like tears them a new one and then dismisses them as they you know leave crying. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only has Vera uh, employed Dolores for years, uh, but as time has gone on, uh, Vera eventually at some point uh, after her, is it before or after her husband dies? I think it's after. Um, when, when she starts working for her? No, 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 no. Uh, Vera moves oh. to the island full time. Yeah, after and like a couple years after. Right. She starts spending more and more time there. Right. And eventually moves there full time. Yeah. Right. So Vera moves to the island full time and therefore is employing Dolores like year round as kind of her head housekeeper. Uh, More and more time passes. Uh, Vera begins to decline. Uh, She develops uh, dementia, uh, mobility issues. Uh, She has various kinds of like recurring hallucinations and things like that. Uh, And at this point, or rather before this point, she takes on Dolores as like a full time live in companion, someone to to watch her and uh, make sure that she's all right and sort of take care of the house. Uh, Because notably, as I said, her husband has died and her kids, she had two kids, are out of the picture, um, appear to be estranged. uh, Because that's one of the kind of like uh, recurring notes in the Vera plotline is that uh, after she moves to the island, she's kind of constantly speculating as to like when the kids are going to visit. Like what what can she do to kind of like maybe draw them in for another visit, even though they appear to have... uh, they want to have nothing to do with her. Uh, and that's a source of pity for Dolores. Um, and something that like Dolores sees that most other people on the island don't see, right? This kind of desire, like this real human desire for her children to visit her, uh, and they never ever do. And so, uh, you know, we, we get that sense early on of Dolores's fondness or not, not, not fondness exactly for Vera at that instance, but, um, Dolores has a more human picture of Vera than other people. Uh, and then we find out uh, later on that they have other stuff in common as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, it, the, it, it's actually kind of hard to like think of Vera outside of having seen the film now. Mm, she the performance in that movie is so strong. Oh, yeah, she like steals the show kind of. But we'll talk about that. Right. It, <laughs> it, right. And so it's actually kind of far. It's this is a rare thing for me where where although it's happened a few times, I guess, uh, on the show where it's like having seen that movie actually really infects the novel in a major way, just in that where that one particular character is. But there there's a lack of of uh pathos right there there's a lack of empathy for vera to me in this book that is actually really great mm-hmm. um she is rich and she is mean and she is cruel and dolores nevertheless comes to see her i think depending on your reading strategy here depending on your investment either as a uh like non-sexual romantic partner mm-hmm. or as a sister mm-hmm. 
right? Because we get these moments, and what I love about King, what what he's doing here, is that because the whole book is in voice, right? Because the entire book has no claims to any kind of perspective, God forbid, objectivity on the situation, right? It is so deeply subjectivated and focalized, right? You know, so meaning that we experience the novel through the subject of uh, Dolores Claiborne, and we only see the things she sees, right? So the, the whole language of the novel is only through her. Um, you know, it's focalized around her. Because of that, we we only get the granularity of the relationship between her and Vera in the language that she is okay with using. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get these snippets, especially toward the end of, you know, they're sleeping together regularly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they have this comfort relationship. It's yeah. deeply physical, right? Right, right. Um, sleeping and, together and we to don't be know clear, what... uh, impl- like, as Cameron says, it's kind of, like, vague. But, like, what she says is, like, Vera gets upset and so she, like climbs into bed with her and like they like lay together or something right but yeah 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 non-euphemistically right she she is not there there's no there's no uh fade to black right. <laughs> and then they you know opening on the uh open windows there's not not like literally they are sleeping in the same bed for comfort mm-hmm. right because they are both similarly aged older women um uh, who spend more than half of their life together mm-hmm. um and so there's this kind of but but there's an ambiguity ambiguity to it you know, in terms of like, what is the connection between these two people? Is it, is it that men have failed them? And so then therefore they are the only people for one another. Is it that they have committed similar acts and that kind of makes them sisters in a way? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it something else? Right. I I don't know. And, and the, I think uh, jump in this novel from many other novels, including Gerald's game, which like circles this drain repeatedly. Right. Um, Gerald's game is spends 80 pages working through why am I the kind of woman that I am Mm -hmm. like in those terms. She's saying, you know, (laughs) those words, right? Oh, maybe it's because, you know, maybe because of my father, I attach to men who suck, like all that kind of stuff, which is a real human emotion. I'm, I'm not dismissive of that, but I'm I'm a little bit dismissive of like the unartfulness that that Stephen King approaches that through right it's very flat for him it's not very um I I don't know it's very uh leery and journalistically and flat right like it's not like human psychology um this is kind of a psychologically real novel like Dolores Claiborne is talking around something um because she cannot bring herself to state it plainly and I don't know what the plainness is there. Like, it, it is actually ambiguous at its core. I cannot read into her. Mm-hmm. And precisely my inability to read into her is what what jumps this up for me from normal Stephen King novel to a really special Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he really, that relationship between the two of them really plays out into something else um, that, that I think is really great. Right. Well, and I think some of what makes that really work as well is I think it's ambiguous for Dolores as well. Right. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these are women who. Right. Uh, she, she doesn't have a secret. Right. Like uh, or she does, but it's not this. Right. <laughs> like, right, right. There, Yeah. There is no secret to the relationship between her and Vera. She has an additional secret. <laughs> and also Vera has an additional secret, which could not work here at the end, but actually does. But yeah, but go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Right. Uh, uh, but it's like they are both women who are, um, as you said, because they're kind of they're, they're social outcasts or they're socially marginalized for sort of similar reasons. 
one, because everyone thinks, frankly, that Vera is a huge bitch. Um, mm-hmm. And those are the terms that they would use. And because everyone thinks Dolores killed her husband and got away with it. And so there's like this very, you know, small rule, like tightly knit community resentment against her for that. So they are both women who uh, in in these like waning years of their lives they're what each other has and uh that is sort of socially ex- uh, exceptional um just in terms of like its uniqueness and it is also still like a very real relationship for both of them and uh you know that like D- Dolores does not say that uh in as many words but it's that sense of like you know like the like she was the only person that Dolores had or that uh, and she and right. she and Dolores was the only person that she had apparently at the end. And uh, like, that's not the type of relationship that most other people on the island or off have. Right. Um. So, yeah, yeah. it's it's just great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the 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 place to go is beyond that that double relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Dolores has three kids. Mm-hmm. She's got Selena. Yes. She's got Joe Jr. Mm-hmm. The other one. The other one. Dies in Vietnam. Who dies in Vietnam? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the other one died in Vietnam. <laughs> uh, the uh, But he does. Yeah, he, he blows up like four weeks before Vietnam ended. It, it's really Steve getting something in there, although I don't quite know what. Also, just just a note, Andy, update the chart. Uh, Joe hates John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, but dies right before Kennedy is killed. <laughs> right. The greatest irony that King can enact on a Kennedy hater is <laughs> right. he gets thrown down a well weeks before the assassination. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so so very good there. Um. But yeah, so basically the story is that Dolores and her husband are high school sweet sweethearts. Uh, she gets pregnant. She has kids. He becomes uh, highly abusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, and an alcoholic. Like these two things are tied in with one another. And it does feel like King thinking on his own issues with, with alcohol abuse, right? Mm-hmm. And drug abuse broadly, right? Thinking about his issues as an addict. Um uh, about what are the effects of that on the people in your life. Right. Uh, Stephen King also has an older daughter, mm-hmm. a middle child named Joe Jr. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but a middle child named Joe. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies, Owen, if you listen. No, it's not. No, Owen King is great. I'm, I'm roasting him. <laughs> but right, like in, in terms of like, the way because of the I think not age difference there right but there is something about how the Stephen King's first two children are kind of clustered mm-hmm. and maybe it's just because they are so kind of omnipresent in discussions around the seventies and eighties that Owen coming a little bit later changes I think the discussion around Owen mm-hmm. we're, we're going to read here's the difference we're going to read Owen's books for this show mm-hmm. we're never going to read a Joe Hill book yeah that's true. Hmm. You know, unless they co-write one before we get there. But. But so, uh, yeah, what's going on there is there's this kind of double thing going on. And what I really like about that is like, and I think something that the movie kind of messes up a little bit is like there is no period of real innocence for Dolores. Mm -hmm. Like she is a working class woman who understands the situation that she is in. And there is no ambiguity to that for her. Right. 
she knows what's up. She knows what's happening. Yeah. The thing that makes yeah. Dolores, or one of the things that makes Dolores so compelling is that as a character, she has no illusions about things. Like, right. she is extremely, like, hard-nosed about stuff. Uh, just sort of, like, face the facts. Uh, uh, something that I do want to mention, we can, like, revisit this as necessary, but this book, uh, the previous book was uh, dedicated to Tabitha and appear apparently various uh, women in Tabitha's family. This book is dedicated to one woman, Ruth Pillsbury King, who was uh, hmm. Stephen King's mother. Um, and you know, tyranny, but tyranny of biography and all that. But I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that there are probably some aspects of, uh, Dolores that are modeled on Steve's, uh, uh, image of his own mother, who, as far as I have been able to kind of uh, piece together, uh, similarly worked as a caretaker for the, uh, ill and elderly uh that appears to have been um something that they moved back to maine specifically to do i think it might have been a family member do not like cite me or quote me on that because it's very ambiguous in kind of the record uh but i know his mother was a caretaker for uh uh the infirm and this shows up in various ways uh throughout his stories has showed up a couple of times in various ways thus far right i think also of um um grandma also from skeleton crew which is about a little boy and mm -hmm. his brother being taken by their mother to take care of the uh you know elderly grandmother with dementia who is also a witch and all that stuff uh here is uh yeah, yeah what a great story mm -hmm. like what a great idea uh but uh here's here's uh, from that bev vincent book i was talking about earlier um, talking about Dolores Claiborne, the novel being written. Dolores Claiborne was pushed back, but he eventually returned to his idea about a woman who spends the entire novel confessing to murdering her husband. Not only is the protagonist, quote, not only is the protagonist a woman, she's also an older woman who is the major character. There are other characters in the story, but they are always in her shadow. She dominates this particular landscape, and I felt feel that I did a good job with her, and that readers are going to be pleased with the woman they find there. She is based on my mother, a single parent, he said in an interview. Quote, she traveled around with me and my brother, working at menial jobs we let a sharecropper's existence almost i see her i hear her voice i know how her hands move so yeah it's exactly what you're saying mm -hmm. that this is it is stephen king writing his mother in a, a fairly sympathetic portrait of his mother or a character heavily based on her right and so yeah the the the, the sort of overlap there for me was like the idea that this like this is a woman who knows she has to work to live yeah. Right. Yes. And she just she like she knows that's what she has to do. She knows she has people she has to take care of. And that is what she does. Yep. Um, And it's pre pretty great. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me read you something else. I wish I'd had it last month. You ready? <laughs> OK. This is him talking about writing Gerald's game. Stephen King. About 40 pages into writing it, I said to myself, I'd better see if this works. So I got my son. I think it was Joe because he's the more limber of the two boys. <laughs> and I took him into our bedroom. I tied him with scarves to the bedpost. Uh. My wife came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing an experiment. Never mind. Joe tried to do it, but he couldn't. He said, my joints don't work that way. End quote. <laughs> So that's how that's how you know Gerald's game is is uh, human accurate, right? Well, <laughs> that's the thing, though. It's like Joe said, my joints don't work that way. So Steve was just like, "Well, I'm going to make up a woman who's different." Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, but anyway, uh, so <laughs> sorry, uh, yeah, sorry yeah, yeah. to detract, but I felt like that was pretty. <laughs> it is. It is good. It's good detail to have. Um, we're talking about Dolores. Uh, she works. No illusions about things. Yeah, yeah. She. Uh, but yeah. So so excellent. And then has uh these children, and ultimately this like like I was just saying. This terrible husband, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of the big moment that shows up here, which which is a great moment, I think, is, I mean, not what occurs, but like uh, writerly wise, he she makes fun of him lightly and he hits her in the kidneys with a big piece of like wood stove wood. Yeah. And uh, she like can't move. Mm hmm. But the the thing that she does after that is she breaks a milk pitcher on his head, which is rad. Mm-hmm. It's cool as shit. Uh, smash smashes him right in the old noodle, and then basically says, "Look, if you ever if you ever do this again, I'm going to kill you." Mm-hmm. You know. So she's like, what I really like about Dolores Claiborne is like she is not um, she's not a road work, right? She's not someone who bit by bit is going to be driven over the edge into doing something that. Uh, she must do right. Uh-huh. She is someone who knows from jump that if this continues, I will have to take extreme and drastic action because th- that's the only option available to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, a really great moment of her. Like, cause he, it's the first time that he's ever really like hurt her like that. And she thinks through it and she talks about the process of thinking through it and realizing if I don't put my foot down on this now, it's just going to get worse in the future. And so right. she does what you said. And then also, and this is you know critical for the way things play out later, uh, Selena, their daughter, happens to witness it. She happens to come downstairs and sees this happen or sort of sees the aftermath in a way that because, you know, she's a I mean, it, it would be a traumatic thing to, I think, witness even if you had the full context. But as a child comes down and just sees uh her mother having hurt her father and like threatening to kill him. Right. And uh, that sort of plants a seed of like uh, uh, doubt uh, between her and Selena uh, that Joe, her husband uh, ultimately like exploits to his advantage. Right. Um, uh, another thing about uh, Joe, I think so. Joe's name is Joe St. George. Dolores Claiborne is her maiden name, which she retakes after her husband, quote unquote, dies. Uh, and that's then, you know, the novel. And that's what everyone calls her, even though legally her name is still Dolores St. George. Uh, Joe is, uh, you know, kind of a rerun at the other Joe, uh, Joe Camber from Cujo, the shitty husband. <laughs> Uh, and then I thought was you, you, uh, mentioned, you know, Steve maybe thinking about some of his, um, own effects on his family here. The thing that jumped out at me is that Dolores goes out of her way to say that Joe isn't a real alcoholic, uh, which you don't have to trust her on because her reasoning Mm -hmm. is that the reason Joe is not a real alcoholic is because he's functional. He can still do his job. Uh, and you know, that that's, I think, uh, an interesting, wrinkle right not a wrinkle not in a a her story sense but in like uh you know for for dolores the drunks on the island are the guys who don't have work and who are constantly just like hanging around trying to find their next drink the fact that like joe has his benders uh but then can still he he like i think i think his main work is like fixing boat engines 
the fact that he can still do that uh, sort of separates him out from like true alcoholism for him. And then, you know, when when the rubber meets the road here, like it's through alcohol that she plies him and then like enacts her murder plot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, it is a. uh, You know, I, I, I think a lot about like King's own relationship to this here, too. Right. Like. There's a very cynical relationship that she has to alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, how much of that is like, obviously, it's all character, right? Like biography is not destiny, all that kind of stuff. But and I do wonder, like. what? How, you know, I don't know. I, I'm trying to find the, the words for it. I just wonder what the perspective is here. And I'm very curious about Stephen King's actual perspective on alcoholism, mm-hmm. um, which is like. Is this an unsympathetic portrait because he recognizes that alcoholism is like an illness, right? Mm-hmm. And so she is unsympathetic, un- not recognizing that Joe like has a real problem mm-hmm. that you know that he can't get can't get over. Uh, or is this a sympathetic portrait, and it's like Joe should just get his shit together? Mm-hmm. You know, he he's kind of like you know, quote unquote, making a decision to be, to keep them in poverty. Mm-hmm. Right. And to drink away the money, uh, because, and clearly he is like canny and, uh, wily, right. All the stuff that happens with the money late in the book, mm-hmm. uh, that, that essentially makes her kill him, mm-hmm. you know, or that's her excuse to, to kill him. I, you know, I just wonder about like, and again, I think it's the strength of the novel. There's an ambiguity there. Mm-hmm. Right. And it is so strongly character based that you can't, you know, often in these books, you know, part of the thing when we talk about Stephen King's fascinations, when we talk about Stephen King, uh, you know, his thoughts that appear in the book, right? It's not Stephen King, the human being who is thinking the thing. It is the narrative perspectives that we see happen over and over again, these kind of containers or genres or uh, wounds that get picked over again and again by the like third person omniscient narrator. Um, we, those are interesting and, th- and those are revelatory to what Stephen King, even if he doesn't believe it, what the kind of author function, what the figure of Stephen King returns to as a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not really here, right? So it becomes more difficult to kind of parse what the return to theme is other than alcoholism being a kind of major problem. Um, I guess, uh, so we've talked about Vera. Mm-hmm. I guess we just talk about what actually drives the plot here, which is that Joe is a like we said, abusive, wants to be abusive, all that kind of stuff, uh, alcoholic. And because he no longer has access to Dolores sexually, mm-hmm. he becomes impotent he, after the uh, the milk smashing incident. Right. He then starts going after their daughter mm-hmm. and starts dating her. Courting is the word that is used. Yeah, that's yeah the word that Dolores takes. Um, uh, and... Yeah, and then Dolores finds out. She notices, like, the changes in behavior of Selena uh, and eventually, like, gets her alone and sort of talks to her about it and gets confirmation and uh, is horrified. Her immediate kind of desire is to take the money that she has been saving uh, because she's, you know, been uh, taking all the money she's making uh, working for Vera uh, and putting it in the savings account on the mainland. And uh, she wants to take that money and flee with the kids and get away from Joe. But when she goes to do that, she discovers that Joe has come into the bank and uh, closed out that savings account and taken the money 
And he could do this without her being notified, even though she was the one who opened the count because they are married. Uh, her name was primary on the count, but he was listed secondarily. And because he was the husband, uh, the bank had no issue with just being like, oh, yes, you lost your your passbook. Of course, like we'll we'll give you another one and then you can do whatever you want with this account. Uh, and she has some choice words for the bank manager on this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically guilts him into, well, you know, guilts him. And also you get the sense that he is like, he understands like what has happened and he is sympathetic to her. So he goes outside of protocol and like, lets her know your husband took the money and then like opened another account with us and put the money in there. Like, so just so you know, that's kind of where it stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her plot or like, you know, the, the, the question she then has is, uh, how like what does she do how does she get this money back uh or how does she get away from joe with the kids without the money like what what's going on what's going to happen here um she's very upset and uh she is so upset in fact that uh against her kind of normal you know the, the other thing about uh dolores that uh is sort of known on the island is that of all the people who work with Vera Donovan, it is Dolores who withstands her the best. Um, uh, and so she's working at Vera's uh, one day and she fi- like she finally cracks and breaks down. And rather than getting extremely upset with her, Vera is intrigued and is kind of like, so what's going on? Tell me about this. And she ends up telling Vera everything. And Vera suggests to her, uh, why don't you kill him? And she doesn't say it like that, but what she says is, like, husbands die every day, and when they die, they leave their wives their money. Because by this point, her husband has also died. Mm -hmm. And she has moved to the island full time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know, there's there's an amazing... I'm going to drop it here so that we can talk about it later, but, you know, she says, "I'm, I'm so tired of seeing that Corvette pulled out of the quarry. Mm hmm and you think it's about the husband? Mhm. Very good. Yeah. Extremely good. Very good. Uh but that's when like Dolores like you know they they sort of talk around the issue but Dolores realizes what she's saying uh and realizes that she's right. That 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 she could in fact kill Joe and that would be a way to get the money. Um and so she then sets about uh that plot, right? That little plan and uh, the the eclipse that we mentioned in the Gerald's Game episode that occurred in 1963 uh, is also happening in 1963 here. Uh, everyone is getting ready for the eclipse. It's going to be a big event on the island. Vera herself is extremely interested in the eclipse uh, and she's making a big party out of it. She like rents the um the like ferry that uh, you know, goes to and from the mainland. Uh, she like rents that entire thing and like has all of her high society friends over, uh, kind of with the hope as Dolores understands it, uh, with the hope that, uh, if she throws enough of a party that her kids will come and visit, because again, by this point, her, her son and daughter are not coming to the house anymore, are not showing up. And so, uh, Dolores thinks like, oh, she's, she's really like acting out because she wants the kids to visit. Uh, And uh, she realizes that since everyone is going to be so focused on the eclipse and, you know, Vera is taking all these people out onto the boat, onto the harbor. So many other people are going to be out on the water. uh, The island is the island itself is going to be essentially deserted, which would Mm -hmm. be a great time 
to kill your husband. Uh, and then she does. She she gets him drunk and you know sort of butters him up. Um, uh, gets him drunk and then gets him angry by revealing that she knows not only that he took the money and has uh, opened a new account, but that she knows about Selena, and then she gets him to chase her through the blueberry patches behind their house where there is an old well that she knows about and the well cap is like wooden and overgrown and rotted and she gets him to run over that and he, you know, falls in and uh, <laughs> then a bunch more stuff happens that we can talk about. But uh, I've gotten us up to please, that Please, please, please. City boy Michael. Uh-huh. Urban Michael. Yes, Urban Michael. Urbane Michael, please. Urbane Michael. Uh, Flanner Michael. <laughs> Always moving about Flittering from the uh, uh, arcade to arcade uh-huh. in the classic 19th century style. Mm-hmm. It's a blackberry patch. Oh, it is blackberry. I was thinking blueberries because <laughs> I was thinking of Michael McDowell's uh, Moon Over Babylon. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought this was Urbane Michael, not literary Michael. It was game. <laughs> uh, but 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 yeah, that that whole thing goes on, and I mean the the. We'll talk about in the bonus episode more. Go to patreon.com slash range touch to get access to the bonus episodes for merely $5 a month. It's like two cups of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but the it's, it's in fact a cup of coffee for the both of us while we sit and talk about these beautiful movies. Mm-hmm. What, what is fascinating to me is the, uh, the way that the Selena stuff is done, you know, that gets us here mm-hmm. because it is an uh, an open and honest conversation about sexual abuse and violence that has no euphemism in it. Mm-hmm. You know, D- Dolores, as she she kind of I, I forget what what gives her the initial kind of clue because uh, she sees the way they're interacting and mm-hmm. that bothers her. But I don't remember the thing that like clues her in. Do you? Yeah, I don't because I the the movie like makes a very clear point of like the thing that's that tips her off, um, which we'll talk about. And that's not in the book. I know it's like she notices that she's not like washing her hair. She's wearing right. like, you know, uh uh baggier clothes and things like stuff that would if you're familiar with um um signs and of of this type of thing happening within families are are pretty common. Um yeah. uh and she puts together like once she's got uh, she thinks at first she thinks maybe she has like a boyfriend that she's seeing on the mainland because that's the other thing is she's not like coming home like she used to because because she's the oldest right. and she's the daughter. She's kind of, uh, you know, helping take care of her younger brothers like she's helping make dinner and stuff and having that stuff ready for, for when people get home uh, and she stops doing that. She starts staying at school on the mainland uh, and Dolores is like, well, maybe she's got like a boyfriend or something that she's seeing, but she goes over and no, like. She's just, like, staying in the study hall, staying at school, staying away from home as long as she can. And then it's on the ferry over that she kind of, like, puts together what's happening. But I can't uh, remember. Uh, I read this book really quick, like, a while ago. It's it's uh, further in the past for me than most of the books are that we do for the show. And so I've lost some of the details. Yeah, I just, I, yeah. I, I mean, I read it over the last week or so, and I'm just, for some reason, blanking on it. But... I, but as you're saying, I mean, there's this slow accrual of detail, and I think there's something really great about that fact that, like, is a slow realization that if you're kind of familiar with these, you know, common signs of this happening, you, you can pick it up faster than she picks it up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a way that this is also yet another Stephen King crime novel. Yes. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're giving data and information before the characters recognize it. It's, it, it's maybe a little bit more... 
uh, artfully done than some of these other ones that that he's done recently. But anyway, she figures it out. But then there's that conversation on the ferry. They're stuck on the ferry together, mm-hmm. you know, going from the mainland to the island, and they're just talking and they're just having a conversation about the you know, what's happened. And she just, you know, really frankly says it, you know, there's some euphemistic stuff, right? Your, has your father been at you Mm -hmm. is one that comes up a few times. Um, but then they just talk about like what exactly has occurred and why. And there is a honest and open conversation between two women, a mother and a daughter Mm -hmm. in this book that is unique at this point in Stephen King's entire written corpus, as far as we have gotten to so far. Yeah. Like, this is a different kind of relationship between mothers and daughters. Uh, And I know we've had a couple that are, you know, slightly off the the major thread. But as we talked about, Gerald's game kind of goes back to some of those, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's this relationship of shame and violence and and terror between mothers and daughters all the way there, which is partially, uh, you know, what makes the uh, sexual abuse in that novel so horrifying, right? Is she can't trust that her mother will not blame her. Right. And whether that is accurate or her belief is, we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is looming over that relationship. That does not loom here. Yeah. Um, but what is fascinating about this is that this exact event, event, you know, the thing where they are close and close enough to have a frank conversation about what's happening to her and help fix the problem, right? To, to help murder her father. Uh that is the thing that drives Selena away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the thing, and ultimately, kind of puts her down the pathway. You know, the things her father does to her, but also what her mother does to her father, puts her down a pathway of replicating her father's life—a thing that the movie makes a lot of hay out of. Mm-hmm. Um, but is much more subtle here, I think. Yeah, uh, I mean, the thing that was really striking to me is that, like, when Dolores puts it together during this scene, like, she just immediately is saying, like, Selena, it is not your fault. You are not the first mm-hmm. sort of, you're not the first girl that this has happened to, right? Like, this is, right. like, like Dolores just immediately knows, like, there are men in the world who do this. And, like, men who do it to their daughters specifically. And now she's got one of them before her, and she needs to figure out what to do about it uh, and and protect her child. Yeah, it feels very non-exploitative mm-hmm. in a way that Gerald's Game feels entirely exploitative. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, Gerald's Game feels like a Bachman book, and we talked about that. This does not feel like a Bachman book. Mm-hmm. Some other thing. This is Stephen King. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, maybe previews the the desperation regulators thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like you could imagine a world in which this was that maneuver of two books that tied into one another that were published one by Bachman, one by King, and came out around the same time in a box set or something. Right. Um I wouldn't be wouldn't be shocked by that at all. But uh so that happens and then she yeah starts plotting and murders Joe. Uh or you know lures him over that thing. Uh while the eclipse is happening and i it sounds like based on what you have said so far because he he falls into the well mm-hmm. and it's like a 30 foot fall mm-hmm. and it like crushes his rib cage uh-huh. and like his his uh, breaks his ankle too i think mm-hmm. and he and he lives yeah which is great mm-hmm. it's i think this is great but it sounds like based on the way you've talked about it so far you don't think this is great well I would think it would be great if, you know, he fell and then he didn't die and then she like has to, you know, sort of deal with him lingering. Right. What I do not like is that not only does he not die, uh, but he (laughs) but he becomes ultimately 
the vehicle for the intrusion of a quasi-supernatural force into the novel, right? He starts doing things that are just impossible. Now, maybe we can, like, chalk this up to, well, this is the thing, is, like, there's a world in which this novel works out such that uh, some of the more fantastical events that now happen could be chalked up to kind of like Dolores's apprehension of the situation and kind of the you know mm-hmm. volatility of her emotion and everything. The problem is there is forensic evidence left behind that demonstrates that what Dolores says happened actually happened. Uh, now, maybe like the you know, the so here is here is what Dolores says. Right. He falls down the well. He's down there at the bottom of the well for longer than she would like. She she wants him to die on the first fall. He doesn't. And then she waits, and he does not die. And then uh, he climbs out. Like, he, he, he nearly climbs out. Like, he climbs up the wall of the well, despite having, like, a, you know, crushed rib cage and a broken ankle and all this stuff. And he becomes, like, you know, the, the ghoulish, grinning kind of Jack thing from the end of The Shining when the Overlook Hotel is in him, right? It's uh, not quite that, but it's very similarly... Um, I don't know if you agree with me, Cameron. You might actually disagree in how this lands, but uh, there's a... a, mm. a, a feeling that uh i get in reading it and this is a feeling that i get i guess from having read all this stephen king right you learn the ways that he like positions um (laughs) certain certain stuff uh right there there's i'll say it in in as clear as way as possible there's a little bit of dark tower here right sort of the oh i think there's a little bit of like i didn't think you were going there at all no okay (laughs) explain explain thyself um Physician, yes. explain this in, in the way that, like, in uh, the Dark Tower, uh, where we've gotten some of this in the book so far, right? That there is like a multiverse, right? There is the tower. There are all mm-hmm. these levels on it, and uh, there are evil forces that are at work at all levels of the tower, and they are all kind of like uh, manifestations or emanations of uh, each other, or like isomorphic with one another, right? Uh, Something bad is happening in Roland's world, or has happened in Roland's world, and that's having kind of these weird ripple effects uh, down into like Jake and Eddie's version of New York, into Susanna's version of New York, and and that sort of thing. Um, And so... uh, in, in the moment of the eclipse, which we already know gets like, we haven't even mentioned it, but like uh, Dolores has a vision that is uh, of events in Gerald's game. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, um, you know, the eclipse is like pseudo magical in, in this way, uh, you know, cosmically magical. And so uh, Joe, against sort of like all odds and reason, seems to become animated with kind of this uncanny life force that just like boils him down to the the core resentment or evil that he represents right in in, Mm -hmm. again uh, paralleling here uh jack being possessed fully by the overlook at the end of the shining um Mm. uh and i guess the other parallel that i'm uh uh pulling this from that we haven't talked about is that uh vera has these um uh hallucinations and one of the hallucinations she has is for these things called dust bunnies which appear to be just like she she's afraid that like dust bunnies are going to come out from under her bed and attack her uh, but Dolores has a dream about the dust bunnies where she sees them she she actually sees them herself and 
uh, they are like these horrible little like that like dust bunnies, like balls of um, um, dust or matter or material, little clouds that take on faces. And she sees in the dust bunny not only the face of Vera's dead husband, but uh, Joe's face as well. Um, mm-hmm. So there's like when when Vera dies, she turns around and peering through the uh, uh, spokes of the wheelchair that tosses Vera down the stairs or that Vera tosses herself out of to go down the stairs is Joe. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's this sense of uh, um, like there is a, a force of evil in the world or above the world, around the world, uh, from which uh, instances of evil in this world originate or emanate, right? Th- that it has agents or potential agents uh, and it works mm-hmm. in the world through them. And here we have Joe uh, uncannily becoming a like mortally wounded man who can climb up a well wall and until his wife smashes him in the, in the face with a rock. Right. I don't. So, I mean, this is, this is how I read it, Mm -hmm. which, which I, so I have no frustration with it. And I actually like that there is a straight up horror thing in the middle of this, basically non horror novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's creepy. It works to me like it legitimately is, is like, ooh, ooh, to me, mm-hmm. right? Like I was reading it before bed, getting getting scared and spooked, right? You know, he's he's like Dolores, you know, he's down there. He's got mm-hmm. this deep voice because his chest wall is caved in, you know. Mm-hmm. But the the thing I I'm thinking about it in terms of Gerald's game, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about it in terms of the most horrifying thing that that Gerald's game is supposed to communicate to us, right? Or like the, the way the end of that book communicates to us. The most horrifying thing is that the monster is real. Mm-hmm. What's that guy's name? Uh, what's, Oh gosh. Um, I've already, uh, consigned it to the dust bin. Where the dust bunnies live. Uh-huh. But you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. The, the, the grave the, robber, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the space cowboy. Yeah. The space cowboy. The space cowboy's real. Mm-hmm. He's a real guy the whole mm-hmm. time. Like it, it is not a hallucination. It's not supernatural at all. It just happened. Mm-hmm. And even though it is beyond belief, there's a court document. It happened. He was there. I also think too. You know, you you mentioned uh, uh, Jack from The Shining, but you didn't mention Hubie Marston. Mm-hmm. And Hubie Marston is a regular, regular ass human being who is sacrificing children in the basement of his evil house to make it more evil. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, there's nothing supernatural in that house until, you know, I mean there's a ghost or something eventually, right? But pre-Hubie Marston, we don't think we don't know if there's anything there, mm-hmm. right? And so to me, it, it, that's part of the lineage here is that this parallels the other book because the monsters are all real. Mm-hmm. Right? And and you know, the other monster is your father, mm-hmm. you know, in both of these novels. These 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 women's fathers, and so so I, that's kind of how I think of it. Like he does something that is extraordinary, right? Because what he does is he climbs up, as you said, he climbs up the wall of the thing, and I really like the pacing of the scene too, because he falls down the well, but the eclipse is going on, so it's dark, mm-hmm. and so she can't see down the well, so she's got to run back to the garage. She's got to get her flashlight. Oh, of course, this jackass husband of hers never puts batteries in the flashlight, but she knows he doesn't do that. So she's got her own spare battery. She gets her spare battery. She puts them in the flashlight. She runs all the way back. She's got to look down. You know, there's there's all of this kind of 
uh, gap of non-knowledge, right? What is happening while I'm not looking? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what is happening when I'm not there? Which parallels the rest of the thing, right? What's happening? She is going to work for this taskmaster every single day, and while she is not looking, what look what else occurred, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's also the stuff too around. Well, we'll talk about Vera in a minute, but the, all of that really works for me. And the idea that he does something that is superhuman that makes her, in the last instance, beat him in the head with a rock to make him stop. Mm-hmm. Th- that, to me, really sells it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If you give me the option of like going to court and spitting on a guy... Or smashing a guy's head in with a rock is like the you know the the final culmination of the uh, you know threads of violence and um, misogyny and you know social oppression that occur in a novel. I'm going to take that rock every day, <laughs> every single damn day. I want the rock. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how I how I I I think it I think it is worthwhile to it. And I didn't make that other connection, although when you're saying that, like that is very rational and logical to me. Um, it's also maybe for me, I am I am so unconcerned and uninterested in the connections, that this kind of like light metaphysical connection between these two novels that I just did not even think about that at all. <laughs> you know, like yeah. the, the 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 eclipse is connecting the girl being abused mm-hmm. uh, from Gerald's game, her childhood and Dolores at the moment she murders her husband. But I. I did not even think about that ever a single a single time again after it occurred in the novel. <laughs> they see one another. Yeehaw, whatever. Let's get back to murdering this husband. Yeah. Well, and that's be- I think that's one of the reasons why um, the husband murder I don't like as much because what I want to be the kind of like capstone metaphysical thing, right? The anomalous, uncanny thing. I want that to be her vision of Jesse. Uh just in like, you know, pure like if I were given free reign to edit this thing or whatever, right? Like what is mm-hmm. what is kind of like a picture of the novel that accords with my own peculiar idiosyncratic tastes or whatever. Um uh because uh I remember so when I first read this book, I did not know that it was connected with Gerald's game. And it wasn't until I read Gerald's game and we got to like the complimentary scene where she sees Dolores Claiborne and I was like, oh shit, like that's what this is. Because how this landed for me when I first read the book um, was this kind of like vast uh, or like the the scene of Jesse. And we don't know that's her name or anything. Right. It's just this girl that um, Dolores sees like sitting on her father's lap. And she understands that they're watching the eclipse, too, and that the father is uh, being inappropriate with the girl in the same way that Joe has been inappropriate with um, with Selena uh, is that uh, it's this recognition for Dolores, uh, as I understood it, and this is why I think the the scene works better from this side than from the Gerald's game side. Um, it's like, you know, Dolores, like Dolores has encountered a thing that happens. It's, it's what she said to her daughter, right? You are not the first girl that this has happened to, right? Not even from her own father. Like, this is a thing that happens. Uh, and so at this moment, Dolores sees that it is still happening, that it happens to other girls and that it will continue to happen to other girls. Um, and there is something very, very sad, uh, and, uh, uh, 
strange about that, that she has this moment of connection, and the girl sees her too, right? They see each other, they are aware of each other, and uh, so far as she knows at the time, like, that's as much as that girl is going to get, is knowing that someone else witnessed it, someone else saw it, and that someone was there with her, and that she she wasn't alone in some way. Um, and that's kind of... Uh, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is that I like more about that. Uh, it, it feels quieter, I guess, than I'm now going to crawl up the wall and get my head smashed in. Uh, but then from like the Gerald's game side, it just feels much weirder because it's she has a vision of a woman standing next to a well like the 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 specifics of Dolores Claiborne's plot in that way. Uh, really don't become clear, whereas uh, mm -hmm. seeing what happens to Jesse from the other side allows it to be read as sort of like archetypal, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, in a way... This is a pattern. This is systemic. This is a thing. Exactly. And, and this mechanism, whatever it is, gives access to seeing the big picture of that repetition. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that was sort of, you know, that that's like my, my preferred clarification here. Um. Uh, but that said, like, it, it doesn't make me dislike the novel uh, a, a whole lot. It's just like, uh, if I had my druthers, I would I would cut this here and move this around here. Uh, but yeah, that that's kind of uh, my whole stance on that. So she confesses to this murder. Mm -hmm. She says, what happened? Uh, I, I do <laughs> just a, a brief aside. So they have to discover the body. Uh huh. She and she can't do it, obviously, right? Because she murdered the guy. Mm -hmm. So she <laughs> has to be like, uh, "There's a long." It's very Stephen King's over explanation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the whole book is downhill after this point. Uh, and but it's her having to call around, and be like, well, "Is anybody seen Joe? Anybody seen you?" And like weeks go by, like a couple weeks of everyone looking for Joe all over the island, and eventually they find him in the backyard, and he's dead, and there's an inquest, and blah, blah, blah. You know, She gets away with it, but everyone kind of knows slash understands that she killed her husband, and they're ultimately, at least some people are sympathetic because the, uh, the going assumption is that because he's, he's such an asshole, and because he has bragged about beating his wife for years, people assume that she just did it in revenge for that or to get him to stop doing that, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a kind of, oh, you're a murderer, but, eh, you know, mm -hmm. if there's a if there's a reason to murder somebody, you know, you, here you go. Uh, and then we get the actual culmination of the thing because she is she is um, accused of murdering Vera, mm -hmm. and she explains to us what actually happened, which is that Vera um, threw herself down the stairs, mm -hmm. and she barely misses her. I really like that description of you know she. She's running after her, and she's trying to get her uh, her like house coat, and she just barely gives gets it, and she misses it, and then she tosses herself down the stairs. And there's this real Stephen King ass description of like this aged woman cartwheeling down the stairs and blood shooting out of her head and stuff. Yeah, it's like pretty wild. Uh, but she doesn't die on impact, mm -hmm. and so Dolores runs, and and but this is also like the moment where she sees. Joe peering out from underneath the uh, underneath the wheelchair, mm -hmm. and it does make you think. Oh, like did did Vera throw herself down the stairs? Right. Mm -hmm. Did she get some help mm -hmm. from a, a ghost or a ghoulie? I don't know. Pretty cool to me, one way or the other. But she, so she's going to mercy kill her friend, basically her friend slash frenemy. Mm -hmm. You know, the the most enemies to friends you could desire in a Stephen King. <laughs> 
And uh, and then the mailman comes in. She dies. Vera dies naturally or of complications from throwing herself down the stairs. Yeah. And then, but Dolores is standing there with like a rolling pin on the ground that she brought with her before she held her friend as she died. And the mailman comes in and says, oh, golly, gee whiz, You're, you killed Vera Don, You killed Vera Donovan. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, that's, this is my Minnesota <laughs> see, yeah. uh, mailman. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you killed Vera Donovan. <laughs> I can't believe it. Golly. Dolores Claiborne, you killed Vera Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> but... But anyway, so uh, that happens, mm-hmm. and then that's how we get to the the confession that we have here all the way, and this is where we get some of the really cool granularity about their relationship that I really liked about the end. Um, and we learn a little bit about Selena too here in these like last bits, which is like she's estranged mm-hmm. from from Dolores. You know, Dolores did all this stuff to save her, so, quote, save her big quotation marks here, right? Mm-hmm. But like, did these things to protect her daughter and protect her future to get the money back, to do all this kind of stuff. $3,000, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but ultimately what that does is it produced a condition where her child couldn't feel the same, that connection that they had that allowed them to have that frank discussion about what was happening to her. You know, Selena knows that her mother, you know, intimates that her mother did it, mm-hmm. you know, and asks her, it's very much, you know, the last of us, right? Like, <laughs> did you kill my dad? No, I didn't kill your dad. Mm-hmm. No way. No way, Buster. Uh, and she never kind of forgets it. And, you know, there's this hint that she's an alcoholic now and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And then the book leaves it there. You know, there's no culminating moment, a thing that ultimately the film can't let sit. And so it has to kind of ruminate there. Yeah. But Well, we get the implied uh, culminating yeah. moment because the last uh, little article we get right. is a mention from the island's local paper saying that Selena has come back for the first time in however many years to like spend, I think, Christmas with her mother or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, because we get uh, um, oh gosh, wh- what do you call it here? Right. So I'm looking at the last couple pages here. So yeah, we. I mean, basically, we get the thing here. Um, it's on three hundred for me. Uh, this is Dolores talking. Uh, Vera was right when she said that sometimes a woman has to be a bitch to survive, but being a bitch is hard work. I'll tell the world it is, and I was so tired. I wanted to have done, and it occurred to me that it wasn't too late to go back down those stairs and that I didn't have to stop at the bottom this time neither. Not if I didn't want to. Then I heard her again. Vera. I heard her like I did that night beside the well, not just in my head, but in my ear. It was a lot spookier this time, I can tell you. Back in 63, she had at least been alive. What can you tell me? What can you be thinking, Dolores? She asked me in that haughty, kiss-my-back-cheeks voice of hers. I paid a higher price than you did. I paid a higher price than anyone will ever know, but I lived with the bargain I made just the same. I did more of that. And she goes on from that. And she talks about the dust bunnies. And so we're left with this kind of... That's not the exact very end of the book. There's another page. But we are left with Dolores being haunted by both the reality of her estranged daughter and Vera herself, right, telling her about the stuff that awaits her and the and the kind of fascinations and horrors that, that Vera had at the end of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Dolores regrets nothing, like nothing that happened. And yeah, you're right. We get a scrapbook at the end, very uh, written in the style of the scrapbook from Misery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, some of the stuff at the end of Gerald's game too. And yeah, you're right. There is notes from little tall Mm -hmm. from the weekly tide, December 14th, 1992, page 16. Um, 
Dolores Claiborne will be shopping for one extra this week. She knew her son Joe, Mr. Democrat, was coming home with his family from his toils in Augusta for a, quote, island Christmas. But now she says that her daughter, famous magazine scribe Selena St. George, will be making her first visit in over 20 years. Dolores says she feels very blessed. When Nosy asked, that's the writer, it's Notes from Little Tall by Nosy Nettie. When Nosy asked if they would be discussing Selena's latest think piece in the Atlantic <laughs> Monthly, <laughs> Dolores would only smile and say, we'll find lots of, to talk about, I'm sure. So she's clear to the charges, even though she did confess to murdering her husband. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, mur- does murder have a statute of limitations on it? Not quite sure. If the person's an asshole. <laughs> uh, that's right. And it's on an island. Right. We, we all know the famous island asshole rule. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, but yeah, so we what we get here, and we haven't talked about this, but we need to talk about it. What we get here is a suturing, uh, you know, uh, a, a fixing of Vera's story. Mm-hmm. Vera's husband dies, and she has two kids, and those kids never come back to the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dolores, her husband dies, and she has two kids. She has three, but one dies in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Scooter died in Vietnam. <laughs> he does in Vietnam. So she's got two. And in the last, second to last paragraph of the book, they come back to the island, right? So, like, there can be some sort of reconciliation possible. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the Vera reveal? Um, I, It is the wildest I Stephen know. King late game revelation. It is, as a plot twist, it beggars all belief. <laughs> it's it's bewildering. Yeah, right. (laughs) Bewildering is the word. And at the same time, I like it because it's like, well, hot damn, isn't that something? (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt about it, too. I just thought this doesn't need to be in this book, but I'm glad it is. Mm -hmm. You want to explain it? Yeah. So I already mentioned that uh, Vera, her kids... uh, uh, stop coming up to the island and she's constantly like sort of uh, hypothesizing like what's the next party or kind of event she can have that might draw them back. Um, we learn uh, actually because uh, one of the reasons Dolores needs to make this statement is because after Vera dies, one of the reasons that she is uh, uh, Dolores that is, is is held under such suspicion is not just because she's found like with the body and everything, uh, but because it turns out Vera left all her money to Dolores this uh, uh, confuses Dolores because, like, hey, where are the kids in all this? It turns out that Vera's kids died in, like, the mid or late 60s. Actually, before then, right? It would have been before the eclipse. So, like, her yeah. her kids died not long after she moved to the island. And Vera spent the next, like, 30 years talking to everyone around her, including Dolores... As if they were still alive. Yeah. Right. And they died in a... And uh, and, and does a uh, does a uh, usual suspect. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, everything that she's said about them has, like, so, like, Dolores puts it together. It's like, oh, the company that her son works for is... Rela- uh, it has the same name as the town that Vera grew up in. Right. It's one of those, right? Right. She, she like, pulls apart. She's like, oh, all these little details are just, like, things that Vera was pulling from other parts of her life and, like, knitting right. together. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and it's it's like wild, and it turns out that they died. Uh, this is left ambiguous, but um, uh, 
strongly suggested that the kids knew that Vera uh, killed the husband, her husband, their father. Uh, she did this um, because he was neglectful and like had a mistress. And so she like fiddled with the brakes on his uh, uh, car and he died in an auto accident. Uh, and it's, as I said, ambiguous, but at, at some point the son gets possession of a Corvette and Dolores herself speculates there are two sort of possibilities here. One is that uh, Vera like bought the Corvette for the son as like an attempt to like get them to overcome their suspicion of her, right, as like a gift or whatever. Or the kids in some way, in knowing what Vera did, like kind of blackmailed the car out of her. Uh, but then one night the son was driving the Corvette, uh, and let his sister take the wheel. He had like visitor at college or something. Uh, and they ended up going off the road into a quarry. Um, and so that line that you mentioned where, when Vera is telling, when, when, uh, Vera has the idea or rather gives Dolores the idea that she could kill, uh, Joe. And she mentions like seeing the Corvette pulled out of the quarry and all the water spilling out of the windows. As you said, we, you think that's the husband because we know the husband died in an auto accident, but it turns out this is the one moment where in front of someone, she is remembering her children's deaths. And, uh, like I said, it's, it is bewildering. It is, uh, strange and at the same time it is such a good like capper to the whole vera donovan thing like this woman who is like dolores like willful right like willful to the point of like self-destruction though uh in, in like you know the, yeah. the, the like she's like the anti-type to dolores like dolores uh like has her goals she works toward them she will like do kind of serious things in order to accomplish them um but she doesn't quite fall into delusion about it in the way that Vera clearly did. Yeah, uh, Dolores will uh, serve, but will not be oppressed. Mm -hmm. Vera will not do any of that, mm -hmm. and and it costs her her children. I mean, essentially, is the is the 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 implication that Dolores makes is that that Vera buys her children a Corvette. Because they are kind of blackmailing about her killing her husband. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the the weapon, because her husband dies in a car accident too, right? So the weapon that kills her husband is the thing that kills her children. Um, and her desire to kill her husband is the thing that kills her chil children, right? Like her inability to bend in any way, she, her inability to serve in any way. Mm -hmm. Um and th then she invents an entire universe mm -hmm. of of fiction, right? And I I love the idea that Vera, because Dolores says, you know, the week of the eclipse, she 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 goes like classically mad, right? Like she believes the story she's been telling herself for her for years. At that point, she thinks the kids are coming to the island. As they get closer to the eclipse, she starts realizing. Wait, am I lying to myself? Mm -hmm. uh, and I like that too. There, there is something. There are all these things in Vera that are hinted at again because of this partialness of Dolores. Right? Dolores only knows so much, and she's only telling us so much. You know, there's this like double within the 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 writing of the book. There's like a double barrier there that's purposeful. Um, and so these like partial glimpses, right? Like. It seems pretty clear to me, based on like the fantasies and horrors that Vera has around the dust bunnies and the wires and the walls and all these other things, that 
King is trying to communicate a kind of obsessive compulsive thing going on with her, right? Mm-hmm. She she in some ways is a, a victim of her concern for order as Dolores is, you know, being made to go out and sub freezing temperature to put six clothespins on the sheets or whatever. Right. Um, you know, she she is as um chained to the rock here as as Dolores is and I, there's just a granularity there, a kind of specificity, a, a thinking through that just especially recent King that we've read, I just don't associate with him. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the best book that we've read out of the past five or six, right? Yeah, like, I would say, yeah, uh, best book since the Tommyknockers. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like uh, uh, you'll you'll recall, listener, that we were both pretty uh, uh, positive on the dark half. That's not to say that like, oh, retroactively, the dark half sucks. But like uh, what we said is that the dark half is like really good middle of the road, like uh, Dolores Claiborne better, right? Like in the way that the yeah. Tommy knockers kind of allowed us to talk about, here are these concerns that have been evident throughout King's career thus far. Here is how he is kind of like trying to bring them together and do something with them. Uh, mm-hmm. Here in Dolores Claiborne, uh, we see some of those concerns carrying forward, uh, but mainly we are seeing him like uh, try something different and really, really succeed. Yeah. Yeah, he's stretching here in a way that we haven't seen him stretch too much in a minute. Uh, which is kind of wild to like look what's coming up. I just pulled up the spreadsheet and check it out. We got Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which I think might be my favorite short story collection. I haven't read it in a very long time, so I, I can't say if my impression holds up. But there are a lot of st- stories in there. What, the 10 o'clock people's in there? Yes, it is. That's I, I love that. <laughs> like, uh, unapologetically and sillily uh i don't think it's a very good story but i really like that story yeah um and i always get it confused with quitters inc but we got that we got insomnia we got rose matter we got the green mile we got desperation and the regulators mm-hmm. then wizard and glass and bag of bones and in terms of like stretching i don't think any of these other books it, to my memory and i could be wrong it's been a long time since i've read any of these other than wizard and glass uh i don't think any of these are stretching books for stephen king mm-hmm like they're all pretty predictable. Yeah. Formally, the Green Mile's quite a bit different. I was gonna say the Green Mile feels like the stretchiest, but that, uh, to my recollection, is mostly in the formal experimentation that he undertook there. Right. Yeah. Because uh, people don't know the Green Mile was written as like a what? It was a monthly serial. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it came out over the course of a while. Uh, you know, a few, few months. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. It's cool. I actually read it initially in its little booklet form. Oh, well, yeah, we'll talk about that. I think I read like the yeah, I read the first four, I think that way. And then our library didn't have any more. So I had to like get the the major book. But um, anything else we want to say about Dolores Claiborne before we get to some segments? No, no, I think I we've pretty much covered it. Like uh, I would recommend reading this one. Yeah, right. It's book fucking rocks. Yep. Check it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So segments starting with my favorite Kingism. Uh, this is the part of the show where we take something, uh, each of us picks out something from what we just read, and we consider it our kingism for the book, uh, something that is like a piece of prose, a word, a phrase, uh, an image, paragraph, whatever, textual maneuver, uh, that is just very indicative of King, his style, and in what he can do with it. Uh, mine is, uh the scene when Dolores is preparing to kill Joe uh, in order to kind of like, you know, get his guard down and everything. She buys him some alcohol and has him like sitting out on the porch drinking and she like makes him lunch. And there's uh, she talk and be- 
because her voice is so strong, she is talking about her memory of making him uh, his sandwich. And she's talking about the voice in her head, right? Her own voice, like telling her like, uh, make this good, Dolores, make it good because it's the last thing he's ever going to eat, right? Just uh, And I just really like that, that feeling or the, 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 the idea, right? The conceit of her really understanding, like, I am going to kill this man. I am making him his final meal. And I just think that's really good. Yeah, it's real short story, Steve, to me. Mm-hmm. Like that that whole, like you could excise that whole segment of her murdering him mm-hmm. and it could be its own short story and it, it could maybe i mean it wouldn't be very good i don't think but it, it could by itself live outside of this novel of of just the from getting home to him coming up the well and down the well and up the well and down the well mm-hmm. um that that could be excised and and live on its own which is impressive uh in some ways too right it is so coherent internally to itself it's because like little moments like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I had the Jim Beam moment that you referenced earlier, but you shat on it so hard that I changed my answer. Oh no! Oh, I'm so sorry. It's on two oh seven for me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read the other part you don't like. Okay. <laughs> it's the other one I had marked too. Um, he's fallen down the well. Mm-hmm. She's looking down there. I'm going to read the paragraphs here. Looking down there, I finally understood what had happened, how he'd managed to fall 30 or 35 feet and only get bunged up bad instead of being killed outright. The well wasn't completely dry anymore, you see. It hadn't filled up again. If it had, if it had done that, I guess he would have drowned like a rat in a rain barrel, but the bottom was all wet and swampy. It had cushioned his fall a little, and it probably didn't hurt that he was drunk either. He stood with his head down, swaying from side to side with his hands pressed against the rock wall so he wouldn't fall over again. Then he looked up and he saw me and grinned. That grin struck a chill all the way through me, Andy, because it was the grin of a dead man. A dead man with blood all over his face and shirt. A dead man with what looked like stones pushed into his eyes. Then he started to climb the wall. You telling me that's not good? I mean... You telling me that's not good? I, I just, I, I want the eclipse vision to be the thing, right? That's really yeah, it. Like, yeah. if you cut the eclipse vision and kept that, I would be happier with it. It's because of the competing things. It's like, it's a... a yeah. it's, I think it's because... Big picture here, right? This is a novel that is so committed to kind of the realist conceit that uh, just for my own purposes, right, uh, I feel like uh, violating the realism uh, in kind of an explicit way once that works, right? We suspend the rule of realism <laughs> once. Violate the rule, the rules of realism once. Shame on yeah. me. <laughs> Violate the rules of realism twice. Shame on you. Very good. Yeah, but no, no. But no, I think you're right. I think that that I think you are absolutely right that there's a competing vision for that like 65 pages of the book that makes it worse. Mm-hmm. It, it, I think if you pick a lane and stick to it, it is better. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, like it could have been good. Uh, I just, I yeah, I, I feel like it's it's a little divided against itself. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, a really quick clarifying question. Mm-hmm. When Jesse has the vision of Dolores Clayborn, isn't she looking up from inside the well? No. Oh, she's not. Yeah, it's a, that's just me. Uh, oh, that's wait, just is, me. Is Jesse in the well? In the well, looking up. You mean? Yeah. No, she sees a woman sit sitting on her hands and knees next to a well, looking down in it. Oh, I I think I'm conflating what Jesse's vision is with a, a cover of Dolores Claiborne. Yes. Of looking up out of the well. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah. 
I just I didn't have the book with me to go check, and so I okay, yeah. great, thanks. Uh, what in the Kingiverse is our next segment. This is the part where we talk about connections between what we just read and other books uh, set in, well, that Stephen King has written that are set in kind of his semi-shared continuity. Uh, we've already talked about this extensively uh, regarding Gerald's Game, which is a companion novel to this one, so uh, uh, don't need to say more about that. Uh, other things that I noticed then, uh, this uh, novel takes place on Little Tall Island, which is a setting that we will revisit uh, at the end of the decade, at the end of the 90s, with the um, uh, TV miniseries uh, Storm of the Century, for which we will read the script, since that script was published on its own, like, <laughs> as a book. So, uh, we'll go... Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of questions that I've seen about whether or not we are doing that. Mm -hmm. And yes, yes. Yeah. When it came out, when because it is published as its own standalone screenplay book that is in the thing, I, in fact, can probably tell you when we're doing it, if you would like to know. <laughs> in March of 2024, we will be doing Storm of the Century. Mm -hmm. Definitive. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, we got that. Um, there's a bit, uh, maybe like two-thirds of the way into the novel. This is not really a, uh, an explicit Kingiverse connection, but I picked up on it because I know what's on our horizon. Uh, there's a part where Dolores is thinking about fate, and she remembers a story she read about Greek mythology and about the fates who spin the threads of our lives. And then the, there's, uh, you know, the one fate who, uh, snips the thread, uh, Atropos, uh, and this conceit of fates, uh, and snipping the thread of life, that is going to show up very, very shortly in the novel Insomnia. And in fact, the name Atropos will, will be showing up there as a, a character. So, uh, just, it's like, oh, okay, he was, he was already working on Insomnia at this point, or like he had, you know, some of the groundwork for Insomnia was already in his head, it seems like. He was doing the things that would lead to Insomnia. I mean, he has to be writing Insomnia as he's doing the stuff, because Insomnia is like a billion pages long. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. And it's like it's it's the book after the next one. So, yeah. Uh, then uh, uh, a fun one, a real fun one uh, that I noticed, and it's on page two twenty in my paperback edition, is when uh, offhandedly Dolores mentions um, a little town down in the south of Maine, quote, the little town where no one lives. Uh, which seems like a pretty clear reference to me to Salem's Lot. I love that there's a vampire village that's just doing its thing. Yep. Like, it's a legit vampire village, and it's still around. Mm -hmm. It burned for the most part, mm -hmm. but, but no one lives there, so there's still vampires there, I bet. Yeah. And what I thought was really nice about this is that uh, we didn't mention it, but this book also has the map, the map of Stephen King's Maine. Uh, at mm -hmm. the front, like Gerald's game did, showing the path of the eclipse. Uh, and you mentioned last time you thought it was notable that Salem's Lot was not on that map. Now we know why. Because it's a ghost town. Why would you put it on the map? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape, then, is the segment where we uh, uh, honor King and his love of music by taking all of the songs that were mentioned in the novel that we just read and review them. Uh, so you, you start us off now, Cameron. I got uh, Aretha Franklin's Respect, R-E-S-P-A-C, cheat, which I guess you're pulling from the uh, dedication here, or the epigram, yeah. not dedication. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that's in here. Why is that? Why is that? Well, well like, in case we, we didn't get the point from the novel. <laughs> that you need to respect women, or they'll throw you down the well? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. 
Well, four stars. Mm, okay. It's a great song. Uh, I uh, only one. Uh, you know, people don't like it when we deduct points for for these definitely objective and well regarded ratings mm-hmm. that everyone is is citing in there. Please, hey, please, uh, someone go and start editing the Wikipedia pages for these songs, <laughs> and and you know, in like critical reception, putting the podcast just king things <laughs> yes. right, in, right at one star. Because they said blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Please do that. Mm-hmm. Please start doing. And that. especially when we give variable ratings, when the same song repeats, like point that out and treat them both right. as equally true. Right. Uh. But the only yeah, I think uh, the song's great. But I just you hear it constant. Mm-hmm. Uh. And I think that's robbed some of the power from the song, unfortunately. So four stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next song, and only song for me, because this is a short playlist, uh, is Amazing Grace, which is a song that gets sung by someone at some point. Uh, no, no, you know, performer here. It's just the traditional Amazing Grace song. I took the bullet because I know you hate these traditionals. Amazing Grace, it is pretty good, I guess. Uh, I'm going to give it... Three stars because you can also sing it to the Gilligan's Island theme, and I think that's pretty great. Is that true? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I think you can sing anything to the Gilligan's Island theme song. <laughs> that's the next podcast. <laughs> will it... Gil- will it... Uh... Will it Gilligan? <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh-huh. Or... or um um. Uh, island time. <laughs> That's it. Island time is the one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got Glenn Miller and his orchestra's Moonlight Cocktail, which I didn't even know play or you know showed up in the book. You you were explaining to me this is like during someone's prom, perhaps. Yeah, this is the maybe she talks about it during her prom. Yeah, this is the song that played during uh, the dance that Joe and uh, Dolores share at their high school prom. Mm-hmm. Is two stars. It's better than a Bob Dylan song, but worse than most music. So. <laughs> <laughs> two stars. Uh, I mean, it's fine. Like, li- listen to it. It's Moonlight Cocktail. Mm-hmm. It sounds like some stuff from that time. <laughs> from olden days. From the days of yore. Yeah. <laughs> What's our next book, Michael? Well, our next book is something that I'll mention just after I say one more time that uh, if you head on over to patreon.com slash range touch, you can check out our bonus episode uh, for this particular episode where we will be watching the 1990. 1990- Five film Dolores Claiborne with Kathy Bates, uh, obviously as kind of a, a intertextual follow up to her performance in Misery. Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about there, not only with that, but with like the way that the the way that that uh, movie chooses to adapt this novel. Because as you can maybe guess by the way that we've talked about it in its form, this book would not lend itself to a movie if you just like uh, filmed what the book actually describes, which is a woman sitting in a room for. I don't know, eight hours and talking. Uh, but uh, you can check that out. You'll also get the whole archive of uh, previous bonusodes that we have done uh, about uh, all the other adaptations that we have watched. And then another thing that you can do to help us out, uh, we appreciate it so, so very much, is to go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a five-star review. And if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave that five-star review... Uh, and make it also funny, then there's a chance that Cameron will read it out loud on air, like so. This is uh, an appropriate review to read, because it is uh, written in Maynard voice uh-huh. by Kryptonian 
orphan. Yeah, you can sit with it. I, I do like that consistently across reading all reviews, the thing that gets you the most is is people's usernames. I mean, it's just it, like that's the beauty of online to me, right? And it's specifically mm-hmm. how you foregrounded it. It's written in Mainer voice. And it's like, okay, Kryptonian Orphan is here to review our podcast in Mainer voice. That's right. So, you know, the classic thing is what if Superman crashed somewhere else? Mm-hmm. You know, what if Superman crashed in Soviet Russia instead of Kansas? No one is brave enough to ask what what would happen if Superman crashed in Maine. <laughs> he crashes in Maine and becomes the Stephen King analog of that that iteration of the DC universe. Oh my Just god! Just a mild mannered horror writer. Oh my god! What? That's oh oh. Do we have anyone at DC listening to us? This is our AU, Cameron. This is what we do: yeah. is we make like the the fiction AU where all of the heroes become like equivalent to uh like twentieth century big authors, right? There's like uh, who's mm-hmm. John Grisham? John Grisham is the Green Lantern. Uh-huh. All right. Easy. Yeah. No, quite like literally he's like some weird law guy. <laughs> That's true. Okay. All right. We can't get distracted in this bit though. We need to like uh, uh set that away for later. That's something to think about. No, let's keep going. Shirley Jackson is Wonder Woman. <laughs> Instead of being from an island, she's from a haunted house and she, she is full of ghosts and her whole family is ghosts. Let's keep going. Uh Cyborg is uh someone else i was thinking who who writes good techno thrillers uh william gibson yeah sure yeah no michael Crichton. michael Crichton. oh yes of course and he's deeply conservative and it makes everyone (laughs) uncomfortable (laughs) on the justice league (laughs) (laughs) we've just invented the rock bottom remainders yeah we did we did um Uh, the okay anyway it's by kryptonian or yeah oh aya you don't have to wait until it's full doc to appreciate this podcast (laughs) I've got a strange, almost preternatural feeling, if only there were a word for this, that these fellas will be around for a spot of time. It's worth a listen. They both float, and if you listen, you'll float too. <laughs> what do you, uh, I, I, you, I, I would like your uh, wife to evaluate my new main accent. Okay. I, you know, she's been deeply critical of my Mainer accent before I've been working on it. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of movies of people doing Mainer accents now mm-hmm. since the last time she evaluated my accent. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear. But thanks so much to Kryptonian Orphan. If you yourself leave me a five-star review, leave us for the show. It's not for me. Don't review me. (laughs) Review the show. Five-star review. And it's a little funny. Probably reading on the show. Here's the thing, too. Uh, We are are right at 4.9. We're always at 4.9, you know, as a thing. Because some people leave us one star Mm -hmm. because they don't like the show. (laughs) And some people leave us four, which is infuriating. If you're going to leave four, leave us five. Come on. It doesn't matter. The only thing it does is it helps us out. Helps us sequence up in the in the stuff. S- slap that five stars on there. Yeah. If you left four stars before, this is me asking you. Go change it to five stars. Mm-hmm. Help us out. Help us. Help us defeat the haters. Yeah. It costs you nothing. And you're most of the way. Listen to an episode. You got a chance to review it. There you go. That's right. Mm-hmm. What is the next book? So the next book will be the next short story collection from 1993, 
uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which, uh, you know, I mentioned that I, I finished Dolores Claiborne quite a while ago. Uh, I thought I would immediately, I was thinking, oh, this is great because we got Insomnia coming up. That's another hefty one. Nightmares and Dreamscapes, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty big for a short story collection. I'm like, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to uh, get started on this. We'll We'll get through it. No, I jumped in and I smashed my face against the wall of the very first story, which might actually be one of my least favorite Stephen King short stories. It's not even a short story. That's the other thing is it's way too damn long. Anyway, we'll talk more about that next month. Just to let you know. You didn't like Dolan's Cadillac? I do not like Dolan's Cadillac. (laughs) Originally published in the Castle Rock newsletter, I believe. Yes, it was. In serial form, which maybe explains some of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh... But you know what? It's followed by, just a little taste for y'all, one of the best Stephen King short stories ever written. Uh-huh. The End of the Whole Mess. That thing rocks. Oh, that's that thing's good. So look, if you start reading the book, that's a little tip for everybody. If you start reading the book and you're not digging Dolan's Cadillac, pro tip, just skip it. <laughs> You'll be okay. Just skip it. We'll tell you about it in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to run into the End of the Whole Mess, the Night Flyer, it grows on you, the Moving Finger. Yeah. There's some really good. There's, there's, there's good. I, I think this is my favorite short story collection. Mm-hmm. This is really good. So anyway, that's all to say. If you if you do if you pull a Michael and you run into the brick wall of Dolan's Cadillac, just skip it. Get through the rest of the book. Maybe come back to it because um, there's some some good stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/RangeTouch in order to support the show for five dollars a month. You can get access access to the bonus odes. There's thirty some odd bonus episodes you can check out, and. You're going to hear us talk for uh, a little while about Dolores Claiborne, the film, uh, which I th- I'm pretty positive on in a general sense, and has some really interesting adaptive techniques. So if you want to hear us talking about that, and I also listen to a full two-hour commentary track about it, come on over to the Patreon bonus odes. really helps us out, keeps the show going. Uh, it allows us to spend dozens and dozens of hours reading and researching and talking about Stephen King. So we'll hopefully see you over there. Michael, why do we do this whole thing again? I don't know. I think I think uh, the the reason that I you know read Dolan's Cadillac, even though you, dear listener, can skip it, you can you can do that because you're not doing what I'm doing. But we're all doing it for the same reason. It's the same reason right. we'll be back next month and we'll be talking about all these short stories. It's the same reason we'll be having a new bonus episode. I would guess you can vary with me here, Cameron. But I would guess we're probably going to be doing the Night Flyer film adaptation. Oh, that's interesting. I thought we were going to do Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the um, short story anthology. Weirdly enough, uh, the short film anthology. Only like two of those actually come from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Oh, is that true? Yeah, but uh, if you want, we can we can do no. The night- let's do the Night Flyer. Let's do it. We we have not talked about this. Okay, this is, we're doing it You're live. Hearing it, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's do the Night Flyer. The the movie doesn't that have um, the guy from. Uh, uh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> God, I can see Quantum Leap. Is he not in that? Quantum Leap. Uh, uh Scott Bakula? No, the other guy. Uh, it's it's got Miguel Ferrer in it. Never yes, mind. it has I'm Miguel wrong. Ferrer. Yep. All right, I'm wrong. Uh huh. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about that. Although I guess, oh, I'm just double checking. I'm just double checking. Sorry, this is a long ending, but it does turn yeah. out the end of the whole mess is one of the uh, adaptations for the Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV show. Yeah, we'll we'll get to Nightmare. Well, look, we're gonna we keep talking about this. But we're gonna run out of things to watch in like 2025, so we'll get there. I'm not stressed about it. 
Oh, okay. William H. Macy's in there, too. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So uh, why do we do all that? Why are we watching all this? Why are we here? Why? It's quite simple. We're doing it for Steve. <laughs>